So what is your honest, actual perception of God in your life? What is your functional view of God? That's the question I'd like you to think about and post an answer to, and we'll be talking about uh, your responses in a bit. I know it's a hard question, but see what you can do. Uh, throughout the series, we've been looking at the fractured Jewish culture that Jesus was born into while exploring the themes of Advent. We've talked about hope in the Essenes, peace in the Zealots, joy in the Sadducees, and this week we're talking about love and the Pharisees. If you were familiar with any of these factions before this, this series, you're definitely aware of the Pharisees because they play a prominent role in the gospels as Jesus interacts with members of this faction more than any other. They seem to have been the most prominent and popular of the four factions, and they are in many ways forerunners to the traditions that we come out of, largely Protestantism and evangelicalism. The Pharisee faction, or, yeah, the Pharisee faction formed about a decade after the Maccabean revolt, so about 150 BC. If you remember talking about that revolt back in week one, uh, basically the Maccabees establish a new monarchy in Israel that quickly becomes intermingled and conflated with the priesthood of Israel, essentially mixing the two. Uh, the Pharisees saw this as a violation of what the monarchy and priesthood were meant to be and opposed this consolidation of political and religious power. And they maintained this stance for 150 years into the first century. In Jesus's day, they opposed the Sadducees and their corruption. They opposed King Herod and his corruption and allegiance to Rome. And they opposed Rome and its occupation and oppression of Israel. Though unlike the Zealots, the Pharisees usually opposed violence as a means of dealing with Rome. Both the monarchy and Sadducees feared the Pharisees because of their uh, expansive popularity among the general population and their ability to sway the masses as a result. Pharisees were mostly laymen whose primary focus was about following God with every aspect of their lives and being. They believe the primary reason that Israel endured being conquered and exiled and conquered and conquered and conquered was because people weren't following God's commands and, and they weren't remaining pure. They wanted to prevent this from ever happening again. So they were, they were all about interpreting the word and law of God such that everyday Jews could understand them and apply them to their lives and follow God in any and every situation they might find themselves in. They were concerned about not uh, breaking, they were so concerned about not breaking any of God's laws that they sought to develop uh, a fence around the Torah as it's called. Basically they created laws that were even more strict and expansive than the Torah to help keep people from ever coming anywhere close to breaking the laws of the Torah. Pharisees believed that if people just followed God's commands, he would send a savior, he would send a Messiah to deliver them from Rome and he would um, cause them to prosper again as a nation. If they just did the right things, God would do right by them. Hence their heavy emphasis on interpreting and applying the Torah, but also their heavy emphasis and obsession on policing people's purity and obedience to the law. Their devotion to God and his word devolved into a, a rigid and often um, hypocritical legalism. Now this is probably true of other factions as well, but we know so much more about the Pharisees than that we can say with certainty that within Phariseeism, there, there existed a large diversity of thought. They didn't all believe the exact same things about everything. Jesus frequently confronts and rebukes and denounces some of the Pharisees for their hypocrisy and their legalism, but he also has friendly interactions and even seems to be good friends with other Pharisees. Uh, in many ways, Jesus was closer to the Pharisees position than any of the other factions. 
So to write all of this entire faction off as being hypocritical and legalistic isn't fair, even though that's what the term Pharisee means today is someone who's legalistic. Um, However, the type of Pharisees that Jesus so often rebukes are those that had become so concerned with people's external behavior and, and checking boxes of purity maintenance that they'd lost sight of the bigger picture um, of God's love and our heart's response to that love. Many of the Pharisees had a functional view of God as being a sort of divine vending machine. If you put in the right things, you get the right things out. If we can just keep God happy, he'll save us. If we can just do the right things, we can earn God's love. It was sort of like, just don't make dad mad and everything will be okay. That was their functional view of God. Uh, What is your functional view of God these days? Let's look at some of your answers here. I know this was a hard question. So thank you for those of you that chimed in. Um, From Sarah, Sarah said, for me, God is someone who can bless other people and take care of them, but I'm having a hard time trusting him to care for me. I love praying for other people though. Uh, Sarah, thank you for sharing that. Thank you for being willing to be vulnerable and and share that with us. Uh, I also struggle. Um, It's easier for me to believe that God is gonna take care of other people. Um, But have you seen points in your life where God has taken care of you? And I don't know, has, has your ability to trust that God is taking care of you grown at all um, over the past few years? Bobby answered, God is somewhat mystical at the moment. I have faith in his existence and that he is the creator. Accessing him and fully trusting him seems a bit out of reach sometimes. Yeah, I agree with that, Bobby. Thank you for sharing that. Nate said, reflective of the times we find ourselves in, my current view of God is as a good friend whom I've fallen out of touch with. I keep meaning to reach out more and more often. Yeah, (laughs) that makes sense. (laughs) Nate, is it weird that I'm reading your answer when you're standing right in front of me? Yeah. (laughs) Sherry said, God today is my friend. He is personal and relational. It hasn't always been so. Sherry, can you think of, I don't know, what helped you get to the point of, seeing God that way, or is it more circumstantial for you? I'd be interested to hear. Thank you to all of you who responded to that. Um, I still find myself often falling into holding the same functional view of God as, as some of the Pharisees. Just don't make dad mad and everything will be okay. Uh, maybe you can relate to this. I grew up in a tradition that was highly focused on behavior and maintaining purity. My church upbringing was all about external behavior modification and doing the right things and not very much about heart transformation. It was all about keeping God happy and not making him mad. And it had very little to do with love. Um, I grew up with the belief that if I just did the right things and didn't do bad things, God would be happy with me and would bless me. But also that if I did do wrong or bad things, I would prove that I was a monster and God would punish me maybe for eternity. For two thirds of my life, my functional view of God was that he was an angry, disappointed father that I was constantly, desperately trying to please. Like the Pharisees, I just wanted God to love me. And I thought that I had to earn that love by forcing myself to behave the right way, to be pure, which I could never manage to do no matter how hard I tried. The thing I felt most was shame for being unable to be good for God. But the birth of Jesus, of God incarnate, God becoming his own creation, the arrival of God with us extends to the legalistic and hypocritical Pharisees 
and extends to all of us who are drowning in shame from constantly failing to force ourselves to be good enough, all of us who are breaking under trying to be perfect, the advent of Christ extends love, unconditional love, not love that you have to earn, not love that is based on your performance, not love that is bestowed once you are able to get yourself cleaned up and presentable, not love that is always at risk of being rescinded if you mess up, not love based on what you do, but unconditional love for who you are, a child of God. Jesus attempts to present this message of love in a story that he tells in Luke chapter 15. That's one of my favorites that I'm going to read to you. Um, I want you to just listen to this. We're not gonna put the words up, uh, just listen. There was once a man who had two sons. The younger said to his father, father, I want what, now what's coming to me. So the father divided the property between them. It wasn't long before the younger son packed his bags and left for a distant country. There undisciplined and dissipated, he wasted everything he had. After he had gone through all his money, there was a bad famine all through the country and he began to hurt. He signed on with a citizen there who assigned him to the fields to slop the pigs. He was so hungry, he would have eaten the corn cobs in the pig slop, but no one would give him any. That brought him to his senses. He said, all these farmhands working for my father sit down to three meals a day, and here I am starving to death. I'm going back to my father and I'll say to him, father, I've sinned against God, I've sinned against you. I don't deserve to be called your son. Take me on as a hired hand. He got up and went straight home to his father. When he was still a long way off, his father saw him. His heart pounding, he ran out, embraced him and kissed him. The son started his speech, father, I've sinned against you. I've sinned before you, I've sinned against God. I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son ever again. But the father wasn't listening. He was calling to the servants, quick, bring him a clean set of clothes and dress him. Put the family ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then get a grain fed heifer and roast it. We're going to feast. We're going to have a wonderful time. My son is here, given up for dead and now alive, given up for lost and now found and they began to have a wonderful time. All this time, his older son was out in the field. When the day's work was done, he came in. As he approached the house, he heard the music and dancing. Calling over to one of the house boys, he asked what was going on. He told him, your brother came home. Your father has ordered a feast because he has him home safe and sound. The older brother stalked off in an angry sulk and refused to join in. His father came out and tried to talk to him, but he wouldn't listen. The son said, look how many years I've stayed here serving you, never giving you one moment of grief, but have you ever thrown a party for me and my friends? Then the son of yours that has thrown away your money on whores shows up and you go all out with a feast. His father said, son, you don't understand. You're with me all the time and everything that is mine is yours, but this is a wonderful time and we had to celebrate. This brother of yours was dead and he's alive. He was lost and he's found. I love this story so much. I see so much of myself in these two sons. I see uh, myself interacting with God in the same way that both of these sons did. And I see a beautiful picture of the love of God in the character of the father. So let's talk about it for a little bit. Uh, we have a son who sins against his father. We don't have time to get into all of it tonight, but Jesus puts so many significant contextual things in this story that we completely miss today. It's a really, really genius story. But basically in what Jesus describes, he shows a son who sins so deeply against his father and also his entire community that, that he could have been put to death by anyone in his community if he ever showed his face in his town again. 
That's how serious and how offensive it is for the son to ask for his inheritance while his father is still alive and then to sell it all and leave with the money. On top of that, he squanders all of the money on hedonistic pursuits and eventually finds himself starving. And it's only when he's facing starvation and famine when he realizes how he's wronged his father. And he decides to go back home and to ask his father to, to not restore him to his place in the family, but to allow him to try to pay his father back by working as a hired hand, basically becoming an indentured servant. And we're told when the father sees the son a long way off in the distance, making his way back to the house, the father runs out to greet him, gives him a giant bear hug, dresses him, puts jewelry on him and orders his servants to start preparing a huge party for him with a grain fed heifer, which we all know is the best kind of heifer. In all of these acts, the father is restoring the son to his true identity. The father completely rejects his son's offer to try to make things right, um, to try to make his wrongs right by earning everything back. This father who should have been so angry with his son, who should have at least had uh, a few choice, choice words to hurl at his son, maybe a fist or two, this father who could have, been, um, could have let his son be killed for what his son had done to him, or could have at least allowed his son to try to make it right by working as a slave for the rest of his life. This father doesn't respond that way at all. Instead, he responds with joy and with love, with acts that restore the son to the family and the entire community. Then we're told that the older son is enraged at his father's response. The older son who um, like the Pharisees has spent his whole life trying to prove himself to his father who always followed the rules and never made any problems, but is still angry and bitter, um, is sulking outside. And his father responds again with love by inviting him into the party. So we have two sons who live very different ways, but both try to earn their father's love. And instead, both are invited into the party. Both try to prove and earn their worth. And their father says, no, you are already good enough. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to try uh, to prove yourself to me. I don't love you for what you do or, or what you don't do. I love you because of who you are and who you are is my child. This, this is the way that God interacts with us. He isn't phased by our sin. He doesn't talk to us. Uh, he, he doesn't ask us to deal with our sin. He doesn't ask us to prove ourselves to him before he'll draw near to us. He's already ran out to meet us in the midst of our sin. Sin messes us up. Sin inhibits our relationship with God. The Pharisees believed the way to deal with sin, um, the way to restore relationship with God, the way to reconcile, the way to be on good terms with God was to earn his love by behaving. And they were so hyper obsessed with proving that they were good enough to earn God's love that they missed the ultimate sign of his love in the incarnation. Paul writes this in Romans 5. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So while we were still ungodly, while we were still sinners, while we were still doing the wrong things, while we were totally not earning it, God shows his love to us by becoming his own creation, living, dying, and conquering death. God is love. 
and God freely gives himself to us. So to all of us who want to try to earn it, like the two sons, while we are out working tirelessly in the fields to earn God's love and his approval, he's patiently waiting for us to come home and rest in who he says we are, his beloved children. He's waiting for us to come home and enjoy him rather than try to earn him, to just come inside and party. So this Advent, may you embrace the reality that you don't have to earn it. You are already a deeply loved child of God. And may you come inside and party already. Will you pray with me? God, thank you that um, thank you that we don't have to earn your love because it's impossible. Um, so many of us have tried and been crushed by the weight of it. And God, I'm sorry that we try <laughs> to earn something that you are so desperately trying to freely give us but I'm so thankful that you don't wait for us to figure it out. You don't wait for us to get ourselves cleaned up. You run out to meet us in the midst of our darkness, to shine a light, to rescue us and free us from fear. God, I pray that we would all this season come to see and experience that love so deeply that it changes our functional day-to-day -day view of who you are in our lives, to be active and loving. We love you, God. Amen.